big questions are, how do business owners like us spending our own money, time, and effort, how do we grow our businesses and jump the line that lets us accelerate the delivery of our products and services in our community while being smart about our growth, profits, and culture, and still create lasting value in our business? Those are the questions, and this podcast will share some of those answers. Today's guest is Dr. Angus Fletcher. He's the professor at Ohio State University's Project Narrative. He's a polymath with dual degrees in neuroscience and literature. He received his PhD from Yale, taught Shakespeare at Stanford, published two books and numerous peer-reviewed articles. He's consulted with Sony, Disney, Amazon, and the Army's Command and General Staff College. He is the author and presenter of the Audible Great Course Guide to Screenwriting and recently was awarded the Rodica C. Bottoman Award for Distinguished Undergrad Teaching and Mentoring 2020. My name is Bob Rourke. Welcome to Business Leaders Podcast. Dr. Angus Fletcher, thank you so much for taking time to be on the show this morning. Bob, thanks for inviting me. I am honored and excited. You know, it's pre the, the interview here, I was doing homework. And the more homework I did, the more I knew I was lacking. And so, and I talked to another good friend of yours, Ken Long, and he had some input too. And he says, maybe you ask this. And so I think to try to narrow it down, and you and I talked about it, we'll narrow down the discussion as to how it might apply to the business community and narrative and so on. And you know what I was fascinated with is, you know, you have literature and neuroscience. And it's like chicken and the egg. Which one came first? So I started out in neuroscience, and that really continues to be the bedrock of everything that I do. Basically, you know, I was a young neuroscience researcher, and I was in a lab where, like every other lab in America, everyone basically thought the brain was a computer. And they thought that the brain operated by taking on data, storing it in the memory, and then processing that data to make decisions logically, and that the brain misfired when it had this thing called emotion coming. And that was kind of how everyone was was, was working on the brain. And I started to notice, actually, the human brain didn't really work like a computer at all. First of all, human brains are actually much worse at doing logic than most computers. Human brains can't take on the same amount of data. You know, even when we do, we're much more irregular in how we process it. But humans are actually a lot smarter than computers in certain situations. Humans are much better at low data decisions. So we're much better at figuring out what to do when there's not a lot of information. That's a situation where AI just goes completely haywire. And humans are also better at being creative. So even though AI can be better at predicting the future, humans can be better at making and making it in ways that AI can't. So that basically kind of got me thinking, what is this kind of secret thing that's going on in the human brain that's different from what's going on in computers? How is it that we're able to have these other kinds of intelligence? And that sort of started me on this very unusual career, you know, where I sort of went to Silicon Valley and Hollywood, you know, I have a PhD and all these kinds of things, which I'm sure your audience uh, doesn't need to know about. And, you know, recently has brought me into working with the U.S. military and traders and other folk to kind of bring out some of the insights in terms of how the machinery of the human brain can do things that is different and sometimes smarter than what computers can do. Part of the reason why I was here talking with you is, you know, I think about the business owner, business community, and a lot of the things you do, they go to business school and they get the MBA and they start a business and so on. And then you find that there's gaps. And in today's world, the media focused world, social media and video and LinkedIn and all the others, I think about the challenge that the business community faces in either communicating properly 
with their existing client or their ideal client. What are your thoughts about, you've done screenplays and movies and all that stuff. And, you know, business owners has got, you got three minutes to hook them in your video. What does a business owner do to take your skill set and apply it to media creation? Yeah, so first of all, just to even back up a second, this whole thing about the gaps in MBA programs, I mean, that's so true. I mean, I think every business owner goes to an MBA where you have some of the smartest teachers in the world, and you expect they're going to teach you everything, and they basically end up teaching you very, very little most of the time. And I think part of that is because so much of modern business theory is based on rational choice theory, economics, all these kinds of things, which are, again, are very logical, and they're not creative, and they're also very general and not very specific. And the key to being a successful, certainly a successful small business owner or getting a business off the ground is being very specific and having a unique original story. Mm-hmm. A story that has not been told before, but immediately connects and hooks people. And you know, I got the start of my beginning of my career, I became fascinated with William Shakespeare. And I became fascinated with William Shakespeare for a reason that I think most people are not interested in him. So, when I went to school, everyone was like, oh, Shakespeare's the greatest poet of all time. He's so wonderful, you know, all this kind of stuff. And then you kind of read it and you're like, God, this is really hard and weird. And it's taking me a long time and not a lot seems to be happening here or whatever. So I remember the first you know, few times I tried to read Shakespeare's school, I just couldn't even get through it. And then I started to realize the history of what was going on. And what was really special about Shakespeare is he invented new stories. So he was coming at the end of the Middle Ages, and people had been telling the same stories over and over and over again. And those stories had just kind of reinforced the way things worked in the Middle Ages, kind of feudal system. Over. And then when Shakespeare helped start the Renaissance by saying you can invent new stories. And when you invent a new story, that invents a new narrative. That invents a new hero. That invents new choices. That invents new actions. That invents new everything. And so I started to think to myself, how is it that he invented these new stories? I mean, a simple example is Henry V, which is basically the genesis of movies like Die Hard, or anytime you have a story about an individual who shapes his world as opposed to the world shaping the individual. The idea that an individual person could change the world, that wasn't something that people thought in the Middle Ages or even in the ancient world. But Shakespeare says, no, Henry V changed history. He wrote history. History didn't write him. So I said, well, how do you come up with that? How do you come up with a new story? And then even more than that, how do you get audiences to buy that story? Because that was what was really special about Shakespeare, is he wrote new stories, and you know, anyone could kind of make up a new story, but then who listens to it? Well, Shakespeare made up a ton of new stories, and they got a big audience. And so I was basically sitting there, this is when I was at Stanford, I was sitting at Stanford, I was sitting in this room, and I was just thinking to myself, how do you do that? Because that seems to me to be the secret to life, to create a new story, and then to get people to connect that story. How do you do that? And I was thinking, I was thinking, and I couldn't really make any progress on it, and I realized across the bay from was a little company called Pixar. And Pixar had at that time just made a movie called Up, which I don't know if your audience has seen, but it's a really weird movie that won a ton of awards and made hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. So in other words, it was a Shakespeare. It was a very original story that connected immediately with the big audience. And so I thought to myself, okay, they must know something. I'm going to go hang out at Pixar. And so I spent a lot of time hanging out at Pixar, talking with them about Shakespeare. I discovered that actually Pixar has this kind of vault of sort of like unmade sort of outtakes of Pixar movies where they came. 
they came up with like different endings for like Toy Story and, all this, and they sort of animated them and then they tested them and they didn't work. And so it's this kind of big experimental kind of secret story lab they have under there. I took away a ton of stuff and, and you can find that stuff all throughout my research, but the kind of simplest core thing that I really learned is that Pixar at its inception was basically founded by Steve Jobs. And Steve Jobs brought into the company the same kind of engineering mindset that he used to found Apple. And at the core of that is this idea of reverse engineering from user experience. So basically you say, what do I want to do? And then how do I work backwards to do that? So in other words, what most people who are storytellers do, which is different from Pixar and Shakespeare, is they start by focusing on themselves now in the present. And they say, what am I? And then how do I tell people what I am? And that usually just doesn't get you very far. <laughs> Whereas if you say to yourself, what do I want to accomplish with this narrative? And then how do I work backwards to figure out how to have that effect? So simple example with, with Up. Up is a story, as the title tells you, it's about taking you up. It's about making you feel good. It's about making you feel optimistic. So the simplest thing that the storytellers did is they said, well, to get you to feel like you're going up, let's start by making you feel very down. And so the story actually begins famously with one of the saddest openings ever in a movie. And the same thing if you are a business. First thought when you're thinking about your story is what action do I want people to take? Do I want them to buy something? Do I want them to trust me? Do I want them to be surprised? Those are all three different effects. And they therefore have different stories. You know, if you want to build trust in an audience, you have to give them something about yourself which is true and difficult to reveal. That's what builds trust. When you say something in public, it takes courage. That's where they're, you know, there's the big I'm vulnerable movement now. I'm presuming that fits into what you're talking about. And that is the core of trust. Uh, the core of trust is being able to be open. And that is true in a business setting. I mean, you don't build trust in a client unless they feel that you're authentic. That is the key to try. Everyone knows that. We have to be authentic in our relationships with people we care about, with our friends. You know, I mean, that's why we only really make friends when we kind of screw up in front of them and they realize that's who you really are, you know. And so if you're going to try and convince a customer to trust you, you have to kind of be honest and say something in public, which is a little bit risky for you because it could make you look bad. It's scary. So that's, you know, that's one. But the main overall thing is start backwards from what you want to accomplish and then figure out how to do it. Don't start from where you are now and then try and spin that forwards. That's the number one mistake I, I see people make in marketing is they kind of focus too much on themselves rather on the specific thing they're trying to accomplish. The military has the reverse planning sequence. And I'm sure you're aware. And you go, well, where do we want to go? We want to go over here. Oh, how do we go from here to there and work our way backwards? You know, and I think for the business owner, they're not marketing people by and large. You know, they're not. You know, they're inspired, motivated individuals that have an insight and will pursue it. And some of them, you know, work out to be amazingly effective on what they do. But I think the challenge for, for the business owner is how do I put myself in the shoes of my ideal client? And in your case, you know, in the storytelling, you know, going through Wonderworks, where you talk about all the various, there's one story that started developing empathy you know, and a number of other mechanisms and stories that, you know, where the tools deployed 
And you think about for the business owner, what I was really impressed with is the book that you developed for Leavenworth. You know, that's the creative thinking, the field guide that's on Kindle, by the way, for everybody that's wanting to know. That to me was more of a a how-to guide. You know, here's some exercises. This is how you think about it. Like, who is it, Caesar, the one that ringed an opponent with a 10-mile-long fence? And then they called in reinforcements. Says, okay, that's fine. We'll put another fence outside. We'll just find them on both sides and go, got them right where I want them. They're over here and over here. And I think about that thinking. How do you take and create that mindset to get there? So the first thing is creativity is not something that you can summon on command. This is kind of the neuroscience. This is what's fascinating about it. It's basically 95% of the kind of creativity circuits in your brain are non-conscious. And that's why creativity is different from logic. Most of the logic in your brain is conscious. So if you want to sit down and kind of plan your day, you can do that consciously. But if you're a creative, you'll notice your creative ideas occur apparently manually. You'll just be walking somewhere and you'll have a creative idea. You'll be focused on something and then you'll forget about it for 50 minutes and you'll be eating lunch and in the middle of lunch, you'll have the idea. And that's because your subconscious, your non-conscious brain is doing all the creative work. And that can be frustrating because it would be nice if you could just do all that work consciously. But what it also means is you have to think a little bit differently about how to kind of make your brain creative. You want to think about your creative brain like you think about your stomach. You want to think about feeding it the right stuff and then trusting that it's going to do its job. When you feed your stomach, you're not micromanaging it and being like, okay, now it's time to digest the proteins and now break down the fats and now the right. You just say, you know, I just know, like if I feed it the stuff that my doctor tells me and I don't eat too much of the stuff that I really want, as long as I put that stuff in my stomach, I'm going to get good, healthy energy. And it's the same thing with your creative brain. You want to feed it the right stuff. So what's the right stuff? Well, first of all, the number one good thing to feed your brain is anomalies, strange things weird things that really excites your creative brain because the reason that your creative brain evolved is to handle emergent threats and opportunity the reason that the human brain is created is because our ancestors were born into a very unstable world and in that unstable world things could change and so to survive you had to be able to see the first sign of change and react to it and that change could be a negative thing it could be a kind of danger coming into the space a kind of new predator coming into the space, or it could be something positive. It could be a new opportunity coming into the space. What really gets your creativity turning is that. And in the modern world, we're trained not to notice strange things. First of all, we live in this kind of machine world where we all get kind of like caught in our own schedules and our own kind of workflows. And anything that doesn't fit immediately into what we've already decided is important. We just push it to the side. We're like, oh, I'm not focusing on that now. You notice this if you ever hang out with a child. You know, the child, she'll always be stopping and noticing stuff, and you'll be just dragging her by the arm, like, oh, I don't have time for that now. You gotta move on, you gotta move on. Because we've trained ourselves to not notice interesting things. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, because we live in a world that's dominated by computers and logic, computers and logic cannot handle exception. They treat those as, as to be regressed to a need. They treat them as anomalies and they can't leverage them in the way the human brain can. So the more you hang out in a kind of modern business environment, the more you're actually taught not to focus on, on these kinds of outlying points. If you want to be creative, you have to reverse that. You have to emphasize stuff that seems weird and you have to actively re-energize your brain. And the simplest way to do that is just to constantly look at stuff that seems boring 
or routine, and then identify the one thing that's special about it. You know, if you like walk up and down your block and it's like an average suburban walk, say, what's the one thing that's weird about this block that no other suburb has? What's that one thing, you know? And the more you start getting in that habit, it's like with your family. If someone saw your family from outside, they'd be like, oh, you know, it's just a, it's just a regular American family. But inside the family, you know that everyone's nuts. You know, there's all these unique, weird, quirky things about them. And you have to translate that same ability to notice the exceptional into everything if you want to feed your creative brain that food. In the world of, you can watch it on YouTube or any other videos deal. I'm a fan of reading odd books that don't necessarily follow. You know, sometimes it's a favorite from when I was a kid. Sometimes it'll be at a recommendation. And the funny part that I seem, maybe it's just me telling myself this, is I'll get a book and read it and it seems to show up when I need it. Yes. <laughs> yes, no, absolutely. Well, first of all, I mean, the reason that, that books stick in your memory is because there's something unique or special or distinct about them. And they will kind of stay buried in your mind. And a lot of times your deep brain will just remember kind of pop them to the fore. The other thing is, is a book is someone else's perspective. On the most basic level, it's just the way that someone else thinks. And again, when you come at the world from the perspective of logic, you're taught there's only one way to think, the master perspective of logic. Mm -hmm. from, from the perspective of the human brain, every brain is a little bit different. And every brain has unique insight. And that's why when you're managing a team, you want to have a diverse team. You want to have people who all think a little bit differently. And you as the manager, want to be able to kind of get that kind of different thought out of all the members of your team, because in any given situation, you know, John might be better than Jane at kind of handling that because he always has this kind of unique angle that sees this way, but then maybe in another situation, Jane is better because she sees so and so forth. When you get to a book, a book is like a unique member of your organization. It's a different perspective. And when you enter into that book, it releases your own brain and increases your range of movement. Even if, that what that specific book is talking about isn't related to what you're doing. It still lifts you enough out of your own grooves that you can free more of your power and expand your own range of motion. And that's why, you know, if you're stuck, really the best thing you can do if you want to reset is just read almost anything, you know, especially something that's different. And it just unsticks your head. You have lots of competing thoughts and tasks that, you know, part of your day. When you get overwhelmed with stuff. What do you do to step back out and reset and basically let it flow? What do you do? I do have a, a totally berserk life, which I'm working for many, many different fields of research and many, many different, I have many different partners in so many different domains. The first thing that I think is important is to always have a focus on your story and what you're trying to do in the world. I think every one of us kind of at our deep heart feels that we have a kind of personal mission. And when we stay close to that personal mission, when we're making that personal mission kind of the story of each of our days, we feel energized and we also feel together because we feel like no matter how different the things are that we're encountering, we can all kind of tie them back to that personal, that personal mission. And, you know, my personal goal in life is mostly to help people grow on their own terms. I mean, I just think there's this extraordinary amount of human potential that we all have, and it lies in the fact that we're all different and we're all unique. We're really living in a world that is so obsessed with mass production and the generic and efficiency and all these kinds of things that it just has this a tendency to obliterate 
what's special and what's unique about individuals. You know, we go to school and we, we're, we're mass taught standardized tests and textbooks, you know, all this kind of stuff. If you go for help on the internet nowadays, people will just kind of give you these single answers that are supposed to help everyone, you know, oh, every business does these three things or, or that or the other thing. And I just believe that everyone is unique. And so the number one thing that I do over the course of my day is I'm grateful and thankful for the chance to have so many individuals in my life who are all different. And I try and focus as much as I can on every situation and what's unique about it. And what holds it together is just that sense that I have is that the more that I grow the individuality of the people around me, the more all of us together will just kind of create a better future that's richer and more diverse and more sustainable. Because as we all know, the way that a species gets wiped out is when it all has the identical genes, you know? And then a virus comes along and kills everything. The reason that culture gets wiped out is because everyone's doing the same thing, right? And then something comes along and wipes it out. But the reason that America is so great is because we're all so different. And you can just go around this country and just see so many kind of local pockets and kind of different thinkers. So that's the kind of, I know that sounds a little paradoxical that, that I feel a sense of unity in diversity, but that really is kind of my core process and my core engine. Well, you, you covered that in another one of your works. You were talking about pluralism, you know, and so, you know, of course, for me, being the academic wizard that I'm going, okay, I think I need to read what is pluralism and go, oh, okay, yeah, I got it. It seems in the past 10 or 15 years that there's been a real focus on mastermind efforts, you know, where you take and bring together theoretically a group of fairly open-minded and or intelligent people. They may be intelligent on the blue thing and on the red thing and on the green thing. What's your observation on the best use of masterminds? Because you, you're brought in as, I think, piece of masterminds, like you were talking about the hedge fund crowd. Here's the key thing about human intelligence. Like, the main reason to bring someone in who's really smart into your organization is not because of what they know. It's not because they have some kind of special intelligence that they're bringing into your organization. It's kind of the opposite. It's because of what they don't know. And what they don't know is all your internal biases and assumptions that you have kind of built into your organization. And so really what you're getting when you bring in a mastermind or someone from outside is just someone who can kind of see past all the, the blind spots and the walls that your team has unknowingly built up for themselves. But you don't want to trust that person's positive ideas, you know. So, for example, I get brought in to consult a lot about AI, about artificial intelligence, you know. And I'm mostly useful because I come in and I'm like, well, why are you building a machine to do that? Or why are you doing this other thing? Or this doesn't make any sense or so on and so forth. But if you actually ask me to sit down and program an AI, forget about it. You'd be there for like the next century. You know, that's not, you don't want me doing that, you know. That's really the key is you want someone to come in and disrupt your kind of ossified thought. You know when your thought is getting ossified because you know your business is underperforming. I mean, anyone who's ever had this experience where they have like a good product, you know, and it's not connecting with the markets or they have a market, but somehow the products are, they're building aren't quite connecting. You know, there's some kind of thing that's not matching up there. You know you're underperforming. You usually just need someone to come in and just kind of shake something up because they will show you an angle that you haven't seen before. And it's not in them and it's not in you, but it's the connection between the two of you that creates the catalyst and the breakthrough. Why is that? You, you know, how's that work for you? And a lot of times it's the elephant in the room. I think in one place you were talking about the people inside of a company know where the problems are. And you were talking about, in, you know, ingrained bias or, well, it's always been this way. It's always going to be this way. And yet somebody over here could go, yeah, I've been looking inside your company and I've noticed you have that 
problem. This is what we did. I think about back to your comment about we mentioned briefly hedge funds and they talk about you know what's signal, what's noise, what's environmental, what's from anomaly to trend. What kind of issues are those folks struggling with? There's a couple of main things that they're struggling with at the moment. The first is there's so much competition in the space. I mean, the hedge fund space maybe used to be this kind of why, I mean, not even that long ago, it used to be completely this kind of like wide open space where, you know, you were kind of taking these big risks as a hedge. The idea being that like, quote unquote, safety of the market wasn't that safe. But now there's just so much in the hedge space. And where's all that money going? How can it all find all these places to go, you know? So that huge kind of competition is a big challenge. And the other thing, of course, that is a challenge is that we are entering, I think, an unprecedented era of volatility. And we have been living through this golden age in certain ways that I don't think everyone has necessarily appreciated of economic stability, kind of consistent growth. A lot of things have been, you know, and you can be a fairly mediocre business person and still do kind of okay. You know, I mean, if you bought a house 40 years ago, you know, in, in a lot of parts of America, you know, you're probably two or three or four times wealthier now because of that kind of consistency. And now we're starting to see a lot of that break apart for various complicated reasons. And what that means, on the one hand, is that a lot of the old ways these hedge funds have made money aren't going to work anymore. And that's scary. But the exciting thing is, is there are a lot of new opportunities out there. You just have to kind of shift your thinking from the kind of way that things are working now. So that's the main thing that I experienced. And I'm sure a lot of regular business folk feel exactly the same thing is they feel there's a lot more competition in the space now. And they also feel there's a lot of volatility. If you're a business owner, you know, this is our business model. We've done it this way for a long, long time and it's always worked. And then it works until it quits. Then you kind of go, well, I either have to sell my business or shut her down. And I think about how would you recommend a business owner create a healthy sense or mechanism to be more adaptable to, you know, cause I, I happen to believe like you, I think we've been really lucky over the past 20 or 30 years, you know, like interest rates have been straight down yeah. effectively. Now they're not, you know, you can only go, well, you can go below zero, but not far for the business owner. How do you create an environment where you're not just chasing your tail, but you try to take and exercise that muscle? First of all, this is the thing that I love about working with the U.S. Army, which I hope I can talk about, frankly, which is that the U.S. Army is basically the world's longest-running successful organization. When you think about what American company has been around for, you know, 250 years, what American company has reinvented itself so many times, so successfully? Of course, you know, the U.S. Army is not always perfect and doesn't, you know, win every battle that it encounters, but overall, when you look at its history and its evolution, it's extraordinary that it's still here. I mean, do you think Google's been around in 250 years? <laughs> no. Do you think Amazon's going to be around 250 years? It's highly unlikely. So, you know, the first thing I always think about is what allows an organization not just to be successful in the moment, but to reinvent itself. And the number one thing, really, depending on the size of your organization, but the number one thing really is that if you are the leader of your organization, you should not be focused on the day-to-day -day running of your organization. That really should be automated. Anything that can be automated should be automated in terms of, you know, you should have kind of protocols and processes that kind of allow the day-to-day -day running to be handled by people around you or by systems around you. 
And your job should be kind of forward thinking. The, the best way to be forward thinking is to stimulate curiosity and creativity. Those are the kind of two things you really need. And I've talked a little bit about how to stimulate creativity in terms of kind of really focusing yourself on anomalies in your environments, being kind of open to change. The main thing about change is it always surprises everyone. And so the key to exploiting change isn't to anticipate it to the extent that you can actually predict it happening five years from now. It's anticipating it enough that when it happens, you're on the front foot and can deal with it faster than everyone else around you. Because business is a competitive environment. It's not about being right. It's just about being fast. If you can be just even five seconds ahead of your competitors, you win the market, you win the day. So that's the important thing about creativity. Curiosity comes from thinking like people who are not you. So in particular, you want to think like your clients and your competitors. You want to sit down, you want to think in terms of your clients. If I were my client, what would I want? What is the number one thing I would want now? Not what can I give my clients? What can I plausibly give my client? But if I was my client in a magic world, what would be the one thing that I really wanted? And if you can think about that thing that they really want and spend a lot of time asking yourself, how can I create that thing for them? That will stimulate curiosity, which will stimulate growth in your business. And you'll always be kind of doing these things and trying to get to that future. And the same thing in terms of thinking about your competitors. If you're thinking to your competitors, what is it that they are trying to accomplish? If I were them, what would I do? Which is a hard thing to think about because when you start entering that space, you know, it immediately becomes threatening. But if you can just say to yourself, okay, my number one competitor is this, what would I do if I was them? And you can then start thinking to yourself, how could I do that? That again stimulates that curiosity. So that's the big thing I think is if you want to keep your company moving across generations, down, you know, push all the kind of day-to-day -day stuff down to other systems and spend most of your time thinking about the future, living in the future by being actively creative and actively curious. In the business community, there's that, that old comment, you're in the business instead of on the business, which means you're the predominant rainmaker and everything else. And so building a team, oddly enough, when you build a team and the business can function while you're out thinking, that's actually more valuable business, but a lot of people are unaware because back to our training commentary, they've not really had that particular training. You know, I think in the military, we used, I'm former, and it used to be there's the battlefield commander and there's the garrison commander, and they're not the same. You know, and you think about it and, and the stuff that you're doing with military, you know, is how do you take a really bold battlefield commander and make them come into a community Perhaps the local post doesn't have a good reputation with the local community and have him come in and mend fences. And I think in many cases, those aren't the same people. Yeah. And, you know, the military has this whole structure where it's designed so that, you know, when you are in a kind of junior staff role, you're basically kind of running the show. And then when you get to that senior job, your job is not to be micromanaging everyone below you. Your job is to be doing the opposite, it's to, be, it's to be allowing the machine to run itself. I mean, I would use the analogy of you driving a car. When you're driving a car, is your brain being like, okay, now I gotta focus on where the spark plugs are going, I gotta think about every spark plug, and now I gotta imagine that the fuel nozzle isn't, you know. No, you trust the machine to run itself. And your job is to look down the road and say, where's the machine going? How can I keep the machine out of a ditch? 
The military is very much like that, is you kind of get the machine going, you know, so that it can kind of run itself. I mean, any platoon out in the field can basically run itself. Any company can basically run itself. Any battalion can basically run itself. But then the question is, what do you do with the platoon or the company or the battalion? And it's the same thing with your business, is you want to trust the people below you, delegating everything you can to them, hiring the right people, delegating, you know, instilling in them the core principles and practices of the business and then letting them go for it. And then you yourself are thinking, essentially, what's the next business? In the same way that the military is thinking, what's the next war? That's really your job. And because the next business is the opportunities and challenges of the future. And in life, you know, biologically, the way we think about this is, you know, if you, if you take a kind of like basic class in biological evolution, you learn that success in life is not having kids. It's having kids who have kids. That is the biological definition of success, is having grandkids, basically. And it's the same thing with a business. The success isn't that you've created the business. It's that you've created a business that can create a business. And that's why you always have to be looking to that next business when you're in your current business, because eventually the business that you have created is going to obsolesce and you're going to need to kind of change horses. In the military, I was thinking about standard practice. You know, you take and you go out on a training exercise, you have basically the goals that you want to do in the training exercise, you execute, you iterate, then you look at it and you come back and you have the old after action report. What did we do well? What did we fail at? What can we do better? And I think as that applies to a business owner, let's say you're the ABC plumbing business and you go, you know what? We're killing it in the market. We have about as much market share. We've done all these other things and, you know, we're really good at that. How would you recommend a business owner start to go out and start to try to identify the next business opportunity? What would you do? Your point about the niche is really important because, I mean, on the one hand, you want to find your niche. You want to find that little area where you do things better than everybody else and you can kind of outcompete everyone. You know, you want to be the guy that does like the floppy disks or whatever, you know, on a certain level. I mean, that's, that's good. You know, you want, to, you want to pick up that space. But then, of course, absolutely, you know, the longer you stay in that spot and just kind of stay there, the more that the environment changes and then your niche just disappears <laughs> and there is no longer a market of what you do. The kind of, I think, dumb solution to this, which you see all the times, are like acquisitions and mergers at the kind of like mega corporate level where everyone's like, oh, you know, we're like an insurance company, so let's buy a car company or something like that, you know? And then they start like matching these things together, you know, or your Coke and you start new Coke or whatever. And you kind of do this thing and you're kind of trying to expand, but really what you do is you create something that's totally inorganic to your brand. You end up having two companies that don't really fit together. You're running around going crazy. You're like a sushi restaurant that's serving tacos or whatever. And you lose your brand identity, you lose your core customers and everyone goes. So like, how do you kind of maintain this balance between on the one hand having the organic specificity of a niche, but then also not getting stuck in that niche. And the simple answer is simply, you just have to think about it as growth, as biological growth. You wanna say, what are the core things that we're doing now and how do we extend them? Not how do I anticipate the market? Not how do I suddenly jump 90 degrees or leap in some random direction, but how do I take what I'm doing and stretch it? And again, the best way to do that is, is always, always, always talk to your current customers and client place and market and say to them, what do you want? So, I mean, if you're a plumber and you're, you have this great plumbing business and, and so on and so forth, you know, and, you know, you start talking to people, 
They say to you, well, you know, honestly, what I really want, you know, what I really discovered is, you know, what really increases the value of my home are a kind of a bathroom upgrade, but they're also like expensive or this, that, the other thing, blah, 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 blah. You say, well, look, as a plumber, I actually do have some insight into bathrooms. What can I do as a plumber to kind of move into that? You know, could I partner with some company that does bathrooms, you know, to kind of bring down the costs of doing those renovations? Is there some kind of interesting way? And so you see how that's organic to what you're doing. And I, of course, know nothing about plumbing or about bathrooms. That's probably a terrible example. But you get the basic narrative there. It's starting with what you're good at, going to your customers, asking what they want, not what you can currently do, but just what they want, and then stretching your current business, not starting a totally new one, but stretching your current business in that new direction. And that growth is what powers most successful companies. It's organic change over time. You can look at any company, whether it's Apple or Sears Roebuck or whatever, or the army, and you'll see that it's that process of organic growth towards what their customers want over time. You know, as, as you were talking, I was thinking back to your screenwriting and script writing and all of those skill sets that you have. And so I'm the typical business owner and go, you know what? I think I want to put a video out and tell my story. For you, you know, you kind of go, a lot of them you see, and it looks like me holding my phone out, sure. which a lot of them are just like that. For the business owner that's trying to be vulnerable, get the story out, reach his ideal client and so on. What would you recommend them do as a precursor to actually shooting that, yeah, that yeah. Superior video? So, yeah, a couple of things on that point just to even start out with. First of all, the quality of the video itself does not necessarily increase sales or people liking you or anything like that. I mean, a lot of that is just a boondoggle if you spend more money. I mean, there's a ton of really cheaply made, really, really effective advertising out there. You know, what's more important is the core emotional connection that you have with a story. So the first thing is, is definitely do not jump at first into hiring an expensive videographer and dropping thousands and thousands of dollars on something. Something cheap can be as good as something expensive. Not always, but you know, it can be. Along with that, pilot your story. Try your story on a lot of people before you film it. Go around and see, hey, can I tell this story? convincingly at the bus stop. You know, next time you just walk down to the bus stop, just tell the story to three people. Go to the supermarket, just stop someone in the supermarket while we're like comparing, you know, oranges, whatever. Just tell them my story. See if I can, at every opportunity I get, just tell my story and kind of pilot that. And then once I start to realize people are genuinely getting into the story, that's when you want to go and you want to film it. So, and this is in Hollywood, this is known as developments. I mean, most movies go through this insane process, takes years of development. And a lot of times it doesn't work that well in Hollywood because there's a lot of other concerns the audience wants. There's a lot of concerns that are kind of extrinsic to the quality of the movie. Um, but the core idea of just go ahead and pilot it and try it, it's the same thing when you're in a business in general. I mean, you know, when you have a new, a new idea for a product, suddenly call up some manufacturing plant and have them ship you 10 bats. And you say, okay, I've got this new idea for a product. Let me go out to a couple of customers with it. Let me see how it works. Let me get feedback, you know? So that's the first thing is, is treat the story itself as a product, as something that you're going to kind of work with and pilot and trial before you get expensive with it. And then, you know, going back to what I was saying before is you have to be really specific about what you're trying to do with your story. Your story is just not you telling what has happened to you. You just telling what has happened to you is incredibly interesting to you 
and interesting to almost nobody who doesn't know you, you know? I mean, if any of us just sat down and started telling our life story, right, unless we were a famous musician or something, no one would care at all. The question you want to ask yourself is, what action do I want the person hearing this story to take at the end? What is the specific action I want them to take? And then once I know what that action is, I want to build back in the quickest and the most efficient way to tell a story to get them to take that action. And if that sounds ruthless, it really is. That's how good marketing goes. We've all seen a ton of really wonderful ads on TV, and we love the ad, and we've never acted on it. We've never actually done what the app wanted us to do. We just thought, oh, that was an interesting ad, and then we didn't pick up the phone. And that's because so much of the stuff out there now is either built on formulas or just kind of built on random moments of spontaneity. And if you're a small business person, you have to be ruthless with your resources. And what do I want to accomplish? What is the goal of this? What is the action that I want the listener? That would be your reverse planning sequence. What's the outcome and work back from outcome? That's exactly right. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And, and I just think in life, we're always just much more successful when we do that for a variety of reasons. First of all, our focus is on what matters. If our focus is on what needs to happen as opposed to what we want. Second of all, our focus is not on ourselves. The moment our focus is on ourselves, the moment our story immediately becomes something that we're telling to ourselves, and it's just very hard for anyone else to access. We just kind of get caught up in our own hopes and anxieties. So this is the number one thing is, if your story isn't working, the two biggest bugs of any story, uh, any kind of marketing campaign, is it's either caught in your own fears or it's caught in your own hopes. <laughs> so we all have these anxieties. If you've ever seen someone who starts to tell a story in public and then kind of melts down and then spends a lot of time, you know, apologizing for themselves and getting anxious in public or sort of, you know, making kind of excuses. Their story is getting hijacked by their own concerns and anxieties and they're turning inward and we just lose them. We can't focus on someone in public when they're focused too. If you're too focused on your own hopes, the problem is you skip over the intermediate steps and you just jump into what you want to be true. I mean, that's like the equivalent of just walking up to someone on the street and handing them an engagement because you find them attractive, you know? It's like, you've missed the intermediate steps here, dude. There's things you gotta do, you know? There's bases you gotta touch. So, you know, if your story isn't working, the chances are it's because you've gotten too caught up in what you think, you're afraid people think about you or because of what you want to happen. Kind of just slow it down a little bit and exit your perspective. And again, you can exit your perspective by thinking like your customer or by thinking like your competitor. Before we go too much further, because I know we're going to come up against a hard stop here pretty soon. But, you know, how do people find you on social media before I forget to ask? So I think one of the uh, things that people always find baffling about me is I'm actually not on social media. I don't have the time to do it. I feel like social media nowadays is a full-time job. And you constantly, I mean, I have friends who, and I know this is a kind of common thing for small business, but, you know, if you're on Instagram or something, Instagram will then just ping your phone anytime anyone responds to one of your Instagram posts. And so for the next four hours after you make a post, you're constantly, you know, getting phone pings and having to respond. And, and I'm more of a deep thinker than that. I just can't handle that kind of, that kind of level of distraction all the time. I mean, I need to kind of like, so I'm not on social media, but you can find me. I have a webpage, uh, you know, in a kind of true 1990s style. I have a webpage, angusfletcher.co you can go to. I think just about the only famous Angus in Ohio. So probably if you just Google Angus in Ohio, I'll probably be the first person to come up would be my guess. And you know, the main thing is, 
it's less about kind of what finding about me and kind of what I do. I mean, the main thing I really want to encourage people to focus on is that everyone has their own story. We live in a world that is constantly trying to sell us formulas and kind of prepackaged generic stuff. And that's because the people who are trying to sell that stuff make money by selling it to you and by convincing you that it's true. And if you want to make money yourself, you've got to be brave and bold and go outside the formula and take a risk. Once you completely control a marketplace, sure, you can be formulaic. Sure, you can, you know, because you own everything and you're essentially the big guy. But if you're trying to break into a space, you're trying to grow your share, that always involves doing something new. And the best way to do something new is to check in with what's unique about yourself. Because what's unique about yourself is, first of all, something that's not out there in the world. So it's an opportunity. And second of all, it's organic to you. So if you're always doubling down on what's unique about yourself, you'll know that your business will always be growing from a common root. It won't just be a kind of random haphazard thing. And if you have a big business, doubling down on what's unique about your team, finding what's unique about my team, that will, again, always have innovative ideas, but also be organic. So to me, it's always that kind of core process rather than necessarily seeking out Angus Fletcher and whatever he says and whether or not this is actually of any direct value to me. As we were talking earlier, I got curious. I'm circling back. Dr. Ken Long, friend of mine, friend of yours, he's at the Command and General Staff College over in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. He's a teacher, not an inmate. So that's a plus. You know, he'll love that. I think about your involvement now with the military. What was the genesis of the ask to get you involved? What was the need or problem? Ken's been one of the kind of most transformative figures in my life. And I've only known him for about six months, really, maybe a little bit longer. But basically, I was working at the time with, and still working with a faculty member at the University of Chicago, Greg Bunch, who teaches entrepreneurship. And he and I were sort of working on how it was that a lot of the kind of neuroscience stuff that I do in Hollywood and Silicon Valley and AI and whatnot could be used for entrepreneurs. How was entrepreneurs? Because to me, story is more than just marketing. Story is actually your narrative. It's actually what you do. It's actually your business. I mean, your business is a story. It's a plan. It's a plot. It's a sequence of creative actions. I mean, when you get up in the morning and you plan your day, you're not marketing to yourself. You're actually creating your own story. You're creating your own narrative. So I think we think of story nowadays almost entirely as a communication device, when actually it is actually the way in which we generate, build, create. So anyway, so I was working with, uh, with Greg on some kind of entrepreneurship stuff, and we were kind of teaching some stuff involving entrepreneurship. And he was friends with, uh, with Ken, with Dr. Kenneth Long. And he said, hey, Angus, there's a guy in the Army who's interested in talking with you. Would you, would you be interested in talking with him? And, and I said, sure, absolutely. I'd be honored and excited. So I had this mind-blowing conversation with Ken, who I understand you may or may not have available to you on a future podcast. He's one of the smartest minds I've ever encountered, you know, and I spent my life hanging out at Stanford and Yale and all these places. And Ken is someone who has read almost everything. And I think is also just a uniquely flexible thinker. So he's able to kind of move between space. And oftentimes you'll have a conversation with Ken and he'll say something which you just won't understand at all. And then three days later, you realize that he was talking from the future and it will make sense to you. So that's the kind of mind that Ken has. And he said to me, Angus, he said, I think that the army needs you to write its new field guide for creative strategy. 
And I said, Ken, that's totally bonkers. I don't know anything about the military. I don't know anything about creative strategy. I mean, this just makes no sense at all. He says, no, no, no. And he says, this would be great. You know, we'll just have a conversation for a little bit. We'll talk about some stuff. And you go ahead and write this field guide. So we, we started talking. We, and I started reading all the kind of ways in which the Army currently works and currently makes decisions and kind of learning a bunch of stuff from Ken about how things work and kind of how things operate. You know, the number one thing that I took away is that the Army is very, very, very good at training compliance, which is basically standard operating procedures. And standard operating procedures are basically, this is what will, this is what has worked in the past. Mm-hmm. And so it's your go-to for the future. It's plan one, you know, try this. But the Army did not have a way to teach people on the ground to come up with a plan two on the fly. So if plan one didn't work, that caused a kind of problem. And then people just started having kind of randomly freestyle or there was, you know, other things kind of happening. And the question was, well, can you actually train people how to make a plan too? Is there actually a way you can train? And the answer is, of course, because that's how plan one came up. Plan one was created by someone. The Army is an inherently creative organization. That's why they're not still using muskets. George Washington is one of the most creative minds in human history. He was a guy who had to figure out how to win an impossible war. He surrounded himself with some of the most idiosyncratic military minds in human history. I mean, if you look at his general staff, none of them thought at all like each other. And, you know, many of them were these kind of self-taught guys. You know, these were the early colonists, very independent, fiercely original thinkers. They hadn't all gone to West Point or something, you know. And Washington was constantly empowering them, constantly drawing on their ideas, constantly being an innovator. Crossing the Delaware is one of numerous examples of these kinds of high-risk, high-reward things that, that Washington did. And so I said, of course we can teach those to do it. We just have to kind of go back, go through all these kinds of moments in history where creative, you know, military commanders have had these huge creative insights, kind of distill what was going on in those situations, and then build a workbook to help everyone think like George Washington or Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar or Patton or whomever, you know. And so that's what I did. I basically sat down and Ken likes to joke, and it's pretty much true that in a weekend, I sat down and wrote this book, basically knowing nothing at all about military history or anything other than, you know, what I had been taught by the, uh, the Commander General Staff College. And that book has become an extraordinary success. I mean, it's now, it's now in the Air Force, it's now in Special Operations, it's all over the place. And it's only been around, I should say, for a couple of months, and its influence is already continuing to spread all entirely due to the team at Commander General Staff College. And also, I should say, the nursing corps, because the nursing corps, they were one of the first groups to kind of come forward. Angela Samosor, who's a major, she kind of initiated a lot of this work by pointing out that uh, the War College is not actually, the War College is always emphasizing creativity, but doesn't actually have a curriculum for teaching it. All these different elements have kind of come together, and I was sort of honored and privileged to join in that. And anyone can get the book. The Army uh, put it on Kindle for, I think, two bucks, basically, because that was the fastest way to distribute it in this age. So you can just go on Kindle yourself and just get this field guide and become next Napoleon. You know, for me, it, it struck me as this like the chicken soup for the soul for creative thinking. As you were talking about story, I was thinking about, I don't even know who to credit it to, it's just the story you tell yourself about yourself is much more important than many of the other stories you may tell. You know, the internal narrative. You tell yourself that you're innovative and then exercise the muscle and you're therefore 
you tell yourself you're creative instead of saying you're not. Well, my mom told me I was a daydreamer, which was a different thing, but it may be the same thing. But I think about the internal story narrative. You have much thoughts on that? Absolutely. The narratives that we tell ourselves have so much effect on how we behave and on how successful we are. And, you know, two very, very simple examples of this, which I think are very important for anyone. First of all, our optimism, our sense of hope is deeply, deeply related to the stories that we tell ourselves. Mm -hmm. So if something bad happens to us and then we blame something, somebody else about it, you know what I mean? Or we think to ourselves, oh, it's because I'm a failure or we do one of these kinds of negative moves that increases our pessimism and our cynicism. And it just makes you less likely to succeed in life. Because the more pessimistic you are, just the less you try. You just have less energy. Whereas if something bad happens to you and you say to yourself, you know what, that was some bad luck. That was some bad luck, but it was just bad luck. And you know what, maybe tomorrow I'm going to have some good luck. If you say that to yourself, anytime something bad happens to you, it is empirically proven to increase your optimism and also empirically, empirically proven to increase your likelihood of success. It doesn't guarantee your success. Optimism is not magical thinking. You can't, just by thinking positive, have the world work out. But if you are optimistic, you are more likely to be successful. And the same thing with creativity. It is an empirical fact that if you say to yourself, I am not a creative person, you will be less creative. And if you say to yourself, I am a creative person, you'll be more creative. It seems like such a silly, simple thing. But if you get up every morning and just say to yourself, I'm a creative person, you will be more likely to be an enemy. You'll be more likely to kind of change your life and the lives of the people around you. And the truth is you are a creative person because all of us are. This is something embedded in human DNA. The reason that our species has become as successful as it has become is because of our ability to invent cool stuff that works. I mean, every piece of technology, every piece of art and culture, every piece of science, every business, think about the enormous amount of creativity. And then just think about all the creativity in your family tree. Think about all the people in your past, maybe your parents, maybe aunts and uncles, maybe grandparents who were creators, who did innovative things, who did original things. That's all in you. And then think about all the times as a child that you just did something totally weird and unusual that no one else had ever done before. Think about all the daydreams that you had. We're all creative. And so that is really the key takeaway psychologically is just to remind yourself of that. And the moment you do, you'll just see. The next day, you'll start having more ideas, and it will just flow from there. I've now since lost where I saw this or read it. You know, let's say I'm the military commander. I've approached a situation and go, this can't be done, right? And then you say, instead of saying this can't be done, it goes, how can it be done? Was that you? That's exactly, well, I don't know if that's me or not, but that is 100% what I believe. Absolutely. That is 100%. The moment you say, how could this be possible? So the key to being an optimist and the key to being a creative person in general is not to say this will happen or this won't happen. If you say this will happen, then you get yourself into magical thinking. And then when it doesn't happen, you get depressed and you give up. If you say this won't happen, you never try. But if you get up every day and say this could happen, this could work, it shifts your mind into this incredibly resilient, creative state. And it makes you the aggressor and the initiator of action. When you say things will or won't happen, you put yourself in a kind of fatalistic, deterministic cosmos, where you just think everything has always been determined in advance. And this is one of the reasons why creativity and logic don't get along. Logic is always about this will always work or this will never work. 
And to be a creative, you have to exit that space and say, this could happen, this could work. And that exit takes you into the zone of experiments, trying and seeing. And that space is enormously generative in any environment that is evolved and open. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the kind of future, I think, of business is anytime there is an opportunity in there because the, the space hasn't been totally controlled by bigger competitors or something. This could work mentality will get you up every morning and always gently probe. Again, going back to our earlier parts of the conversation, you know, just because something could work, don't all of a sudden push all your chips in on that. But if it could work, go ahead and put a chip in or go ahead and try it and see what happens. And oftentimes you discover your biggest breakthroughs in business or anything else come from trying something that doesn't work that gives you the idea for something that does work. It's that kind of hop, hop, hop effect. Hey, to um, as you go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And you would never get there if you didn't have the courage to make the first jump. I know that you have things going on after this call. I like to see how people think. You know, and for you, you have disparate influences that cause you to think the way that you do. And it's useful, I think, for the business owner and for others to hear the pathways that you think. And you kind of go, well, why don't I think that way? It's because you have not used that muscle. Use the muscle. And, you know, back to the plug on the creative thinking, you know, there's other books, but this is more of a, I think, a very instructional manual with practical exercises that tell you what you can do to take and start exercising and building those muscles and maybe a game plan. And I think you could take in another weekend and create one for business owners in a blink. You're going to need to do what the command and general staff college did. Just give me a crash course in business. And, you know, if you give me that crash course and you give me the 15 greatest business thinkers in history, you know, we can sit down and write that book and put it out for two bucks on Kindle or whatever the creativity thinking guide is currently out there for. Well, Angus, it's been a pleasure. I thank you for your time and uh, look forward to doing this again sometime in the future. It's been a pleasure and an honor, Bob, and honestly, anytime. You betcha. Appreciate it.